I am Nick Burns, and this is Radioactive on KRCL-FM 90.9. We're a show for you, for grassroots activists, for community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. And I know that's why you tune in. So, Laura Jones, you're my boss here at the station. Real quick, you've got an update about the station, which is pretty exciting. Well, if you've been listening the last little while across all the different hours of the day, you're hearing that some DJs are back live. Our new studios in the Guadalupe neighborhood of downtown Salt Lake are coming online. Hoping to get this show when you're ready to come back, Nick, live in the studio. Right now, we're still pre-recording your show in particular, but really excited that uh, things are coming together. Hopefully, we're through COVID. So folks, as I'm putting out feelers for you to come on the show, time to start thinking about coming in live at 6. Oh, coming in live will be great. I've still got my health stuff. I actually was trading emails with my doctor the last couple days about my own particular autoimmune disorder. But yeah, hopefully we're on the slide towards a new, better world for everybody, which is, I'll get in a sales pitch here, what we do on Radioactive. We are, of course, remaining your community connection. But, you know, Radiothon's coming up. We are live. We are local. And we do have an update from The Hill, what I want to get into. And we're also going to talk with author Kevin Jones on the show today. Many folks will remember his um, involuntary retirement (laughs) as the state archaeologist of Utah. He's also an author. And he has a new book out, a fiction book that's really quite a page turner that's set in the San Rafael swell. So I look forward to talking with him later on the show. I want you to ask him what he thinks about the news out of Moab, where some, I don't know if I want to call them reverse monkey wrenchers, went and put some grease on handholds at some bouldering places around town. What do you think of that? So if you would do oh. me the favor of that. And before we get started, late-breaking connection with uh, our friend, over at Utah, Danae Bikea. And joining us from Utah's Capitol Hill is Woody Lee, Executive Director of Utah, Danae Bikea. And Nick, I noticed that they've got a gallery opening. And I'm like, what gallery? So Woody totally is cool. joining us to talk about that now. Hi, Woody. How are you? Good afternoon. Uh, very good. How are you doing? Doing well. And why are you on Capitol Hill today? Is there a bill you're watching, a bill or two, perhaps? Uh, mostly one. And the other one, I think it's going to um, hopefully that, lack of a better term, die on the vine. Yeah, what's that one? The uh, House Bill 371. Uh, about the uh, voting, um, we feel that they wish strongly feel that it's a voting suppression, just like uh, uh, some of the other attempts and and, and other uh, voting um, that has been done throughout the country. And we think that this one is very, very uh, unnecessarily. And I hope and I wish that uh, Mr. Lyman would have... Uh, come and talk. We'll have to extend an invitation to Phil Lyman to come and talk. So Representative Phil Lyman and other folks are concerned uh, that our elections aren't secure. Utah Dene Bikea, rural Utah project, working really hard in the rural parts and parts where our, our tribal members live as well to get them registered, to get them engaged in voting. And I'm guessing you think this bill would uh, would reverse those those gains, Woody? Yeah. Um for an example, living on the on the reservation is totally another world, if you will. 
uh, within within this country. It's just a, a lot of the thing is uh, under a normal condition, if you will, here outside of the nation. Once you get onto the nation, it's different. Um, just like with the uh, wi- Wi-Fi systems and our electronics, and and a lot of those are very very um, hard to come by. And those that, that the services that we have out there are very limited and uh, very scarce, and not a whole lot of people can that have access to this to to all the electronics that we have outside of the world, outside of outside of the nation. And then at the same time, traveling out to polling places, just not it's just not around. And it's you know uh, miles away to get places. Well, it's no it's no small irony, like you are saying, that the very people who would be most negatively impacted by Lyman's bill are his own constituents. You, um, it's hard not to read some racism into that for me. Um, I know our governor is not particularly excited about this bill and changing voting, uh, the bill to change voting. I'm not sure whether he would actually you know. <clears throat> veto it. We'll find out. But I want to ask about this gallery, the grand opening, Dene Bikea Gallery. Right. Your gallery opens on Saturday, and I understand you've got an artist in residence. Yes. Uh, his name is um, Mike, Michael Haswood, and he's been with us for quite a, for uh, about a year or so. And he's been providing a whole bunch of arts and then uh, did the uh, are some T-shirts that he designed for us. And within our within Utah, the Nebuchadnezzar, we have several programs, not only uh, into arts. Uh, we have traditional foods, our economic development, our uh, econ- uh, uh, renewable energy. And then we have our communications and we have our uh, cultural sens- sensitivity trainings. And so within that, we're on right now, we are really... Um, the arts is where I think it it, it kind of neutralizes everybody from all fields and all walks of life to where we uh, really uh, get an impression of how people uh, have lived and how people are today and what people see. And so in that sense, you know, it's, it's a, a common uh, thread amongst everybody. And we'd like to invite everybody uh, to come to our office on Friday, on Saturday, and over here at the uh, Leo Building, the uh, museum right next door to the library, and uh, to see if we can have uh, see everybody there. And this is Saturday, the twenty sixth. And for folks that don't know about the Leonardo, it's a good chance to go check it out. Two hundred nine East, five hundred South in Salt Lake City. What kind of work, real quickly? I know it's cold out, but we appreciate you 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 weathering this for us. What kind of work went into making this gallery come together? Was this a long time in coming? Um, the other place that we have on the, the uh, our other office, um, we started off that, and then to really ex- expose uh, our artists due to the, uh, bouncing off the uh, COVID uh, when COVID hit our area. And a lot of the folks that, for example, down in Monument Valley, that was their total source of income. And once COVID hit, they shut the park down and shut everybody down. And, and now we have a whole bunch of artists with stacks of their uh, produce, uh, their not being sold. And then that was their sole income. So in that sense, that was one of our responses to COVID. So how do we uh, how do we help uh, these artists uh, try to stay afloat? So in that sense, you know, we, that was one of the um, reasons why we uh, start really pushing on the arts. Well, I think it's pretty fantastic that you've got a spot at the Leonardo. And again, Saturday, the 26th, 209 East, 500 South, the grand opening of the Utah Denea. 
Bikea Gallery. Woody Lee, is there a website people could check out? Yeah, over at the utahdenebikea.org. Very good. And there you can, uh, we're, uh, we're also launching a new live uh, website. So we're totally overhauling it and which is going to be happening here quite shortly. So just bear with us, bear with us, bear with us, uh, with the, uh, with our current uh, website right now. And we're going to totally redesign, have it, we have it redesigned. Super. Well, Woody Lee, executive director of Utah Dene Bikea. Thank you very much and best wishes with this gallery. I think it's pretty exciting. Yes, uh, I do. I do as well, sir. And I do thank you and hope to see everybody there. Yeah, brave the elements. Everybody should come out. It's almost spring and spring will indeed happen, climate change or not. And we'll get the show notes uh, loaded with these websites and Earls and whatnot too for everyone. Very awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Woody Lee. Next on the show, want to revisit something we talked about just recently on Radioactive. The Great Salt Lake Institute um, has a legislative update on the petition by the sixth grade class at Emerson Elementary to make brine shrimp the official Utah state crustacean. Jamie Butler, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. All about brine shrimp. Oh, yes. So why don't we jump into this with a clip? We have the sixth graders up on the hill today. Um, and I want to say maybe kind of getting a grilling from our legislative officials, but let's roll that tape. We have two, two more presenters who will share their knowledge of brine shrimp, and you will be the most informed natural resources committee. Ever. What, a, what ages are these kids? Sixth grade. Sixth graders. Awesome. Welcome, all of you. Representative Briscoe's area, I assume. Right. Couldn't Hello. tell. Go ahead, young man. State your name and. My name is Mohammed Fai, and I also go to Emerson Elementary. Speak right into the microphone. If the Great Salt Lake were to lose its water, we'd lose the brine shrimp too, and it would release toxic dust, which would go up into our mountains and melt our snow. Our main tourist attraction is skiing and snowboarding. If less tourists came, it would threaten our economy. It would also get in our lungs, which will heighten the cases of respiratory diseases. Some ways we can fix this problem is by diverting less water from rivers and lakes that go into the Great Salt Lake. We could also conserve water in our homes, like taking less showers, fixing leaky faucets so that water can go back into the Great Salt Lake. It's not just our class that's passionate about brine shrimp, It is people in our schools, our city, and our whole state. Here's some feedback from from people all over Salt Lake City. One person commented, We should celebrate the unique ecosystems and organisms of our beautiful state and keep it just a little weird, too. Another person said, How many landlocked states have a state crustacean? None. In fact, as of 2017, only seven states, all coastal, had a designated state crustacean. Let us celebrate and honor this special creature and its unique ecosystem. Also, our petition is currently at 984 signatures. In summary, we and many others believe brine shrimp should be our state crustacean. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell me what the scientific name is of the brine shrimp? The Artemia. Very good. Okay, that was the sixth graders getting a grilling up on the hilling, so to speak, from our legislatures. Again, sixth graders at Emerson Elementary to their work to make brine shrimp the official Utah state 
crustacean. Jamie, from the Great Salt Lake Institute, how's it going? Is this going to fly? Are we going to have brine shrimp uh, on our state seal or something like that? Hey, you know what? I haven't petitioned to have have the state made um, instead of the beehive state, the brine shrimp state. Um, so I haven't petitioned for that yet. But I do think brine shrimp today it passed unanimously in the House Natural Resources Agriculture and Environment Committee and will go to the full House floor. Um, and we should have a Senate sponsor after they find out. We have over almost a thousand signatures and lots of comments from people who support Mr. Craner's sixth grade class. So, I mean, in, in the past, we've seen this kind of youth-led efforts be fairly successful when it comes to dinosaurs and things like this. But I wonder for, for you and your work with the Great Salt Lake Institute, you know, this gets some publicity for the lake. And I think we all know the lake needs some publicity these days. Yeah, and I think one of the important things people keep saying, well, what will this do? Will this protect brine shrimp more? Um, or will it help these brine shrimp? Why does it even matter? And I actually think it's this really awesome celebration of successful management of a natural resources in partnership. So the industry and the State Department of Wildlife Resources are really working in partnership to uh, manage a sustainable brine shrimp harvest, both for birds and for people. And it's it, it it's not just that we think that brine shrimp are really cool. It's they are sent around the world for use in aquaculture for our growing human populations. So it's a boon for the economy, for you know, food worldwide. So I think it's a, a very special celebration and recognition that we have something really cool going on here. That's a model for natural resource management. And pretty amazing that anything can live in the Great Salt Lake, considering the salt content. You mentioned the brine shrimp industry. And again, brine shrimp often get shipped to Indonesia, where they grow the prawns and the shrimp that then we get in our restaurants. But tell me how brine shrimp also support the birds and what else uh, they are doing to support wildlife around the lake. Well, it's just an incredible productive system. Um, sometimes there can be the same amount of biomass in brine shrimp in Great Salt Lake at one time as the biomass in 1.8 million people. Wow. So at, one, at one time. So, you know, um, there's entire populations, you know, nearly all of the eared greaves rely on 20 to 30,000 brine shrimp every day that they eat. And 95% and of the world's population of eared greaves comes to Great Salt Lake every year and they don't really have anywhere else to go. Our eggs are all in one basket when it comes to some of these birds that come here. We have a reliable brine shrimp have a, a reliable brine shrimp population and um, saline lakes around the world are shrinking. So um, we have this very special, unique hub uh, for birds. And again, for those folks who've been out to the lake, there's often this smell around the edges and whatnot, and people tend to not like it. But some people might say it's the smell of money with the brine shrimp industry, but it's also the smell of those millions and millions of birds who fly through, right? Those are the birds that are coming here to chow down on the shrimp, just like, you know, some of us do when we uh, have our shrimp at, at whatever restaurant. Um, are you optimistic that... Uh, that, well, first of all, it sounds like everybody's optimistic that these sixth graders will prevail and we will have brine shrimp as the official Utah state crustacean, uh, crustacean, sorry, sorry. But in terms of this helping save the lake, do you see positives, this $40 million bill, the drop in the bucket, no pun intended? 
You know what? I sure do. In I've been working on the lake for 23 years, and I've never seen this much attention in the ah. legislature, in like the public eye. I haven't. I have not seen that, and I do have a lot of hope. And people have been studying the lake for decades, all aspects of Great Salt Lake, um, not just academics, but you know, state state agencies. So we have a, a recipe for success. We're set up for success. We know how to work together. We just need to do it now. And really at this point, everybody needs to do everything. So if you're um, a sixth grader at Emerson Elementary, maybe you can conserve water and write your state legislature and you can try to get Brian Shrimp designated as a state crustacean and bring some awareness. But, you know, if if you're somebody like me that can talk a lot, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to never shut up about how cool the lake is. And, um, and then maybe if you're a legislator, you can really think about how um, bills are going to play together because it, it, you know, that that's what it's going to take is kind of a coordinated effort. It sure is nice to see many up on the hill taking what seems to be a pro environmental stance when it comes mm -hmm. to the lake. Um, many of us might feel it's a day late and perhaps a dollar short, but it's something I don't think we've ever seen before, um, this kind of coming together. What's next, do you know, with this brine shrimp? Do we need an official state vote and a sign-off by the governor? What's, what's next for the sixth graders? Yeah, it'll um, House Bill 298 will go to the House floor very soon, and then they will will pick up a, a Senate sponsor, and it will go to the Senate, and then the governor will sign the bill. I hope he'll sign the bill. Um, before we let you go, Jamie Butler, the poem "Irreplaceable." We talked about that before. Tell me about the poem. Yeah, um, a poet, Nan Seymour, is on vigil with the River Riding Collective. She's been staying on Antelope Island um, during the whole legislative session and is creating a 1,700-line community praise poem um, about Great Salt Lake. And um, she did it. She um, Saturday, we, we read 1,700 lines of this poem on Antelope Island, and we're going to keep going. Um, 1,700 is... The, uh, it was not chosen arbitrarily. It's 1700 is the square miles that um, Nan has envisioned a restored Great Salt Lake would be. Right now, the lake levels are so low that the square mileage, the surface area of the lake is only about 950 square miles. So, um, so yeah, about half. And wow. so, so, uh, so these this poetry um, hopefully will swell to even more than that. Um, I do have um, an excerpt of Irreplaceable that the sixth graders uh, with Mr. Craner's class have created. If I could read it to you. Yes, please, please. I wanted to make sure you read that before we said goodbye. <laughs> Brian Shirt Matter, a praise chorus. Brian Shirt Matter to us. We care about them. We like how fast they swim. They may be small, but we need them so much. Brian shrimp matter. They are small, but do a lot for us. The impact they have is so big. Praise the way they feed so many amazing birds. Brian shrimp can only live in salt water, only in the south side of the lake, only in certain salinity. Their arms look like spaghetti. Praise their little black eyes sticking out of their heads. Praise them for providing hundreds of jobs from farming cysts. They swim like they are crawling through a vast nothingness, like whales in the ocean, but friendship in Great Salt Lake. We love their bright colors when we see them. We like the little wing things that they swim with. 
praise the way their wings propel them through water. It's cool and unique how they swim. Brian shirt matter. They're the ones who bring the life. Something that surprised us is how they help prevent toxic dust from releasing. Brine shrimp matter because they are keystone species. Brine shrimp matter because we use the cyst to feed our fish. Brine shrimp are beautiful creatures. They help our ecosystem and our economy. They matter because one, they are very cute. Two, without them, the lake would be more unhealthy than it is. Praise pink lines with wings swimming freely. Plays Praise black, pure eyes staring into mine. If we did not have them, we would not be here today. Praise the way their eyes pop out of their tiny bodies. Praise the way you can see them so easily with their eyes. Brine shrimp matter to us because they live in the Great Salt Lake City School District. Praise brine shrimp for giving us learning opportunities. They are a foundation of the whole lake. The mass of brine shrimp in Great Salt Lake adds up to the mass of 1.8 million people. Brine shrimp matter because of everything that has happened in 2021 to 2022. Studying Great Salt Lake has brought us happiness in this hard time. That is Jamie Butler reading a small portion of the poem Irreplaceable Above the Great Salt Lake, a section of the poem written by sixth grade class at Emerson Elementary School. They are the kids behind the push to make brine shrimp the official Utah State crustacean. Jamie Butler from the Great Salt Lake Institute, I hope we can have you back after this $40 million bill is funded. We could find out what we could best do with that money. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I appreciate you calling in from coffee shop because I can hear the espresso machines and whatnot in the <laughs> yeah. background. So thanks for taking time to join us on Radioactive. Yeah, thanks so much. We need to take a break, and when we come back, I'll talk with Kevin Jones about his new book, A Quick Trip to Moab. But in honor of these sixth graders, this is Come On, Utah, from Shovels and Rope on KRCL. One in four Utahns has a criminal record. If you or someone you know needs help with the expungement process, visit cleanslateutah.org, a new nonprofit working to ensure that Utahns don't miss out on opportunities because of their past. If you've made a recent gift to KRCL, you might be able to double your donation with one simple email to HR. Businesses like REI, Dominion Energy, and Home Depot offer matching programs. See if your employer will match your gift at krcl.org. This is KRCL 90.9, and coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, Followed by Rude Awakening with Liz Schulte in its new time slot, Wednesday nights at 8. Maximum Distortion with Cody D and Forgash at 10.30. And then John Florence starts your brand new day at 6 a.m. tomorrow. You can catch any of our shows the last two weeks on demand online at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Nick Burns coming up with author and former state archaeologist and author Kevin Jones on his new book, A Quick Trip to Moab, Insurrection in the Wilderness. But we had some time, and I wanted to reshare with you, meet the DJ with Liz Schulte, since her show will now be airing Wednesday nights at 8. Here's a little insight into Liz. All right, so this is a meet the DJ kind of conversation, so I'm going to ask you some non-music questions, too. Let's do it. What's your favorite thing to bake, since I just met you outside (laughs) Carlucci's, where your sister is the proprietor, and Mm -hmm. you are also... A baker? Um, I really like, hmm, probably the baguettes. 
and it's because it's a multi-step process. So yeah. that's probably my favorite. Yes. Wow. Okay. So get me from baking to punk rock. Oh, I think that they have no connection. <laughs> so there you go. It's chaos. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I actually think that a lot of people that I know in the punk scene, though, actually work in food. I don't know if there's like a connection between like creating stuff that others consume. I don't know. Maybe. Or it's uh, shift work that you can work around your band. It could be that as well. (laughs) (laughs) So when did your love of punk rock and ska start? I mean, ever since I started choosing my own music, I think. How old was that? Oh, so... I think it was actually really, really, really young. I think my first show that I ever went to, I think I was 12 years old. Wrap your head around that. I think it was 12. 12. Yeah. Did your parents take you or did no, you no, sneak no. out? My, what was the deal? My older brother took me. I remember like begging my parents and they were like, you're way too young. And yeah, so that was my first what show. What was the show? It was, what was my first show? I'm trying to re- remember it was at the Triad Center. Violent Femmes. It was the Violent <laughs> Femmes. <laughs> yeah. So like 12 years old, Violent Femmes Triad Center. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Kind of really reshaped your worldview, it sounds like. I remember I also won some tickets right after that. So I'd already been to my first show. So I yeah. thought I was like... You're an old pro. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah. So I won some tickets to... Um, it was Green Day when the Dookie album, right before that one dropped. Yeah. And I remember I was on... So I was on the guest list because I won these tickets. And I showed up to Deviate and the doorman laughed at me. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not letting you into this show. And I was like... I'm on the guest list. And he's like, no, you're not on the guest list. But I was probably 13 at the time. You know, like really, really <laughs> young going to shows. And then from there on out, I, I felt as if I could just do it. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the doors open and you're like, yeah, I can go to shows. So I, from 13 on, I was definitely hitting, you know, more underground shows. But yeah, yeah. I've always been into punk and ska. Well, my punk rock scene was a generation earlier, at least, right. from yours. But I remember that kind of like, I can do this. I can do this, yeah. I don't need to how I can figure this out. Yes, yes, yes. And it's totally different than it is nowadays. Like, how do you even find out about shows nowadays, right? Social media. Well, that didn't exist. There were flyers. But a flyer feels like it's for everyone. Social media, you have to be within a group. So there's like this different feeling of acceptance nowadays, I believe. I feel like it's more open in our time, in our generation. It feels more secret society now, oddly, the more we can communicate. Right, right. Wow, that's, that's, that's pretty trippy. But also think about, like, counterculture, right? So there's this amazing counterculture here in Salt Lake because, I mean, we all know why. Um, but that builds community. Yeah. And when there's something to be in opposition to, whether absolutely. it's the status quo, a predominant yes. religion, your parents. Yes, absolutely. Uh, commercial anything so um how did that shape who you are and what you do because you're also involved with spy hop so absolutely yes so spy hop is something that when i was a teenager i needed spy hop didn't quite exist so spy hop is a local nonprofit that teaches digital media to teenagers so i work in the design department and design means so many different things but I help with the special effects, the animation, the game development, all of those things fit within design. And so that's what I help teenagers create. And it helps them express themselves, tell their story to the world, 
maybe empower the youth as well. So I want the teens, once they leave our programs, mm -hmm. to be really awesome, well-rounded youth that are able to take on the world. You know, it's kind of interesting because you see punk evolve from right. its um, kind of implosive ethos, right? Yes. Burn it all down. Absolutely. <laughs> and here you're telling me what you're trying to do is help people express themselves, take on the world, and change it. Yes. But, you know, I also feel like punk has those attributes as well. Think about, like, the Boeing community or, like, Food Not Bombs. There's always been this, like, underground, I'm trying to change the world. Sure, I have to burn it down first, but then like what <laughs> comes of it after that, yeah. I get to decide what that looks like. And isn't that what every yeah. next generation is? Yeah. Well, shout out to Aldine and Rock Against Reagan, right? Yeah, absolutely. And now it's Rock Against Whatever because there is always something to challenge in the world. Yes. So when it comes to doing Root Awakening at 3 a.m., granted right. <laughs> we're in this COVID environment where we're all having to homecast. Yes. But what what's your approach to creating that show and why? That's a really great question. Okay, so the reason why I actually started doing the show at that bizarro time is when I was baking bread in the morning, it felt like the music was too slow. I mean, there was no DJs, right? It was music, granted, but it was all like auto-played music. And I wanted some high-energy music to kind of get me through baking off that bread. I wanted something with some like pizzazz and energy and oomph. I didn't want to fall asleep. I wanted to be up working because that's what I was doing. So my show kind of like resembles that. It's high intensity. It's like get work done music. So you're curating the playlist that you wanted oh, at I think, three in the morning. I think not just me. I think all DJs <laughs> kind of curate their shows based upon their individual needs. So what's your playlist for baking? It is a lot of like bad brains and a lot of like aggressive, intense music. Also paired with some like high beat, ska. I, I kind of run the gamut. I'm all over the place as far as like music that I choose. Um, it could be no effects. It could be bad religion. It could be whatever it is I feel like. And I hope that people don't know what song's going to come on next. I hope when people listen to my shows, they're like, how did you go from like a slightly country to like a, a bluegrassy punk to like, you know, boxcar kids all the way to grindcore? Like, how do you even go... And I'm hoping I'm keeping people on their toes and waking people up. <laughs> okay, so I don't know anything about your personal life, and I was just saying, do you want to talk about it? Do you have kids? You have three. I have three kids, yes. 17, 12, and 10. Wow, so what do you tell them about your punk rock days? I mean, you were 12 when you went to your first concert. Yeah. Have you let them go to their first concert? If too? any of them would be interested, <laughs> they I think that there's this thing where kids are going to um, try to be different from their parents, right? So if your parents are punk rocks, what They're are Michael they Michael P. Keaton's. Yeah, exactly. Okay, you guys are going to have to Google that if you're too young for that reference. So the joke around my family is that um, when my kids rebel, that they're going to become missionaries. <laughs> no, honestly, I have three fantastic kids. I'm super close with them. I think that, um, you know, you always listen to the music that your parents listen to, whether you want to or not. It's just like playing in the house all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like a special place in their heart for my music, whether they want that it to be or not. But I'm leaving space for them to go down whatever path they choose. Oh, and it's like a dagger to the heart when they tell you your music is 
for old people. And you're like, no, oh. that was a soundtrack of my youthful rebellion. No, no, no. I totally support that. I like having my own things that's vastly different than theirs. If they ever said that I listen to old pe- person music, I would totally support it. I've got a sticker on my car that you got to see. It says, like, old punks don't die. They just sit in the back. <laughs> That's Meet the DJ with Liz Schulte, host of Root Awakening, which moves to its new time slot, 8 p.m. Wednesdays tonight, folks. Now that you've cleaned your house for the 75th time, do you have a stack of vinyl or a giant bin of CDs that you just don't know what to do with? How about donating them to KRCL for our annual record and CD sales? We're not sure what they'll look like this year, but they will happen. Whether you've digitized your library or just need a great place to donate your record collection, KRCL would love to be that place. Your old records and CDs could help fuel the next generation of music lovers. Reach out to KRCL's volunteer manager for drop-off information at ericn at krcl.org. Thanks. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. And next on the show, next on the show tonight, the book is A Quick Trip to Moab, Insurrection in the Wilderness. The author is Kevin T. Jones. Kevin, welcome to Radioactive. Thank you, Nick. Wonderful to be here. Oh, I appreciate it. And you're kind of off the grid currently in Colorado. I see a lovely cabin behind you. I'm in a lovely cabin. Big, big home, actually. But yes, we're off the grid. Uh, we power everything with uh, batteries from from uh, uh, solar panels. Um, we get our water from our own well. We do use propane. So, you know, we are still tied to hydrocarbons, but uh, uh, mostly we are just uh, in- independent and self-sufficient and, and very, very happy to do so. Oh, good. And again, for folks who might not remember, Kevin, you were the state archaeologist of Utah and you were sort of <clears throat> involuntarily retired when you spoke up about some issues having to do with digging up some uh, <clears throat> artifacts and whatnot to make way for development. You earned your PhD from the U. You worked for decades as an ethno-archaeologist. Um, in Peru, you wrote a previous book about some remote folks in Peru. As an ethno-archaeologist, you blend sociological research together with archaeological research, right? Um, well, just a quick correction. I worked sure. in Paraguay, not Peru. I'm and, sorry, uh, Paraguay. My fault. Ethno-archaeology work I did. I, I lived with, with modern-day hunter-gatherers with um, the goal of understanding how their behavior translates into the archaeological record so that when I come back to Utah and I and I work in an archaeological site by the kind and distribution of artifacts and features and other traces that they leave I could better understand what people were doing a thousand or ten thousand years ago so it was both um, living and enjoying the culture that I lived within but also studying the archaeological residue that they produced when when they uh, camped and and uh, uh, you know, butchered animals and, and ate and so forth. So now you've got a new book out, A Quick Trip to Moab, Insurrection in the Wilderness. Of course, it's not a quick trip. It's a story about a modern day insurrection. I wonder, as opposed to your previous book, which was about hunter-gatherers in, in Paraguay, what what's your motivation for this book, this new novel? Well, um, let, me, let me just take a quick aside that relates back to what... Uh, we just talked about the um, uh, crustacean, the official Utah's official sure. crustacean. 
you know, about five years ago, I was involved in, a, in an effort to um, help uh, get Utah's Native American rock art named as Utah's official works of art. And we were successful in doing that. Um, and very, you know, quite a few people were involved. It was very, and it's very appropriate. There's, you know, the Utah, the rock art of uh, Utah is, is known around the world. And I find it to be very ironic that we talk about naming a new um, official state symbol. And I read in the newspaper today that there's a proposal before the legislature to fund a, um, a development of the, of the road through Nine Mile Canyon as a, as a route for, for trucking uh, big rig oil, um, oil tankers uh, at, at, at considerable um, uh, risk to the incredible rock, Native American rock art that's down there. Um, how, how my involvement in, in, uh, dealing with, with, with the, the interplay between development and preservation and protection of Utah's cultural resources led to a quick trip to Moab was that I, I was involved for many years in helping to try to balance the desires of developers of, uh, uh, oil and gas uh, of mining interest, of logging, and so forth, with the need to protect cultural resources, and and uh, um, I recognized uh, throughout the that entire time that we do need uh, to develop certain certain resources. We do need we do need oil and gas, as ugly as a as a as a well pump may might be to someone. Um, you know, you probably drove to get there to where you're taking your hike. So there's it has to be it has to be balanced out. Um, along the same time, and I started this book about five years ago, um, we were having some protests against federal government uh, on the other side, not monkey wrenching like Ed Abbey wrote about in in, uh, uh, in his books, but um, carrying guns and protesting a closure of a road or uh, uh, trying to enforce grazing grazing rules or so forth and and it um it, it's something that shouldn't take any of us by surprise but kind of what happens in a situation like that is someone will actually protest like for instance representative phil lyman protest the closing of a of a of a trail down near blanding and uh, help to organize a, a ride uh, of ATVs down down that road and recapture to uh, protest that closure. And his goal was to just ride to the closed spot just to draw attention to it. Um, but a whole bunch of other people showed up who were willing to push the issue farther. And they show up with guns and they show up with big flags and they show up with um, kind of outrageous attitudes and, and ha have kind of taken that to another level. Same thing happened down with the Bundys down in, um, in, in Nevada, that a whole bunch of uh, um, others who are not so much interested in the protest, but, but think it's pretty fun to uh, uh, get involved in some, some uh, kind of craziness, show up with their guns and, and, uh, and take it to a whole nother level. Similar thing, though, even happens with the, um, uh, like the protests that we had in this country a year or so ago, Black Lives Matter and others. Um, there are a lot of people who are legitimately wanting to just draw attention to the concerns that they have and have a peaceful protest. 
and then people show up who want to who want to cause some trouble yeah who want to throw bricks who want to burn some things so that's what happens in a, a quick trip to moab there's a protest anti-wilderness protest in the san rafael swell and a bunch of crazies show up and take it to another level and that's where a couple of people like just average uh average people several average people are just going about their normal business and they get caught up into it and that's the that's the basis of the story yeah and you raise you raise a good point in the story because this is this is a page turner it's a thriller um this is a great read under a shade tree maybe in the summer this isn't an academic book this is a you know you should sell the movie rights i presume um but the plot, like you say, we've got a truck driver named Lily, a geologist named Stan, and they inadvertently get mixed up in the middle of this protest, which starts, like you say, with some folks protesting, local folks protesting a wilderness designation, and it quickly expands and people coming from all over and, you know, people end up being killed. Um, what struck me here was that that Stan, the geologist, your main character, and Lily, the truck driver, they're being pursued on foot. They don't have much food. They don't have adequate clothing or shelter. And they're being chased by armed insurrectionists on ATVs. Um, and what really struck me was Stan and Lily, they are chasing hopefulness. They're chasing what I would call hope. They're trying to escape. Um, and so even though there's death and destruction in your novel, I saw it as a novel about hope. And I wonder if you see it that way. I love that you I love that you notice that, because I think that's exactly what it, it is about. And it's about people finding themselves in a situation where you might give up all hope. You might think it's hopeless. And then these people rise to the occasion and especially Lily. Uh, Lily becomes the the hero of the story. She saves the other people along with Speck, the dog. The dog's a hero too. Um, oh. But I think part of the um, part of the discussion I wanted to have comes when um, another person gets tangled up in this, and his name's Frank. He's a uh, a reporter from Price, and he knows the people who started the protest. And he was coming out to interview them and just talk to them, and he thought, well, they were doing a good thing to help protect our state from. Um, the federal invaders, and all of a sudden he's wrapped up in this too. And it provides an opportunity to have some uh, um, some thoughtful conversations between Stan and Frank, who are kind of on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. And I wanted to portray it as it, you know, the, that I don't think the people who are protesting uh, a wilderness designation are necessarily bad guys. They just have a different perspective on protecting certain kinds of things. And and I wanted to have that conversation, so I I, I hoped that in, in you know, and I wanted to make it a page turner, and I think it is. But I also oh, yeah. wanted to have I wanted to have some nuance to it, and and uh, invite people to think about what some of those issues are. Well, and when that journalist from Price shows up into the book, I mean, he's older, he has some health issues, he can't hike over hill and mountain like Stan and Lily more easily can. But I think the book really does take a turn there because we, you know, you've written Stan and Frank talk. They sort of talk about the two different sides. Um, so on the one hand, you've got a local journalist but I was very intrigued that Stan, you know, he's just passing through town, stops to pee and comes across Lily and her husband who's been shot. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, but I was very intrigued that Stan is a geologist because 
the San Rafael swell to me is a character in this book. Uh, yes. And, and Stan, he's a, he's more, more of a geomorphologist, which is re- recent geology geology. And he has worked in the area. So it gives him a knowledge of the geography and the lay of the land and of the places. And it, so it gives him um, it, uh, an understanding of where to go, how to avoid places where these guys on ATVs are going to be able to find them and how to go towards a place that they might find um, some sanctuary. So that's his, his knowledge of the area is, is crucial to their survival. Um, on the other hand, Lily's knowledge of how to, how to hunt and, uh, and, and just her gumption provide them with a, you know, another level of, uh, of ability to, to deal with the situation. Yeah, good point. Lily is not from Utah like Stan is. So she is sort of in a wild environment that she's not totally familiar with, but she does have a hunting background. She's comfortable around a gun and so on. So as I mentioned, Lily, of course, is a foreigner to the San Rafael Swell. And you mentioned we've got Frank, this local journalist. Let's take a moment here, Kevin, and why don't you read us a little bit of your book about that interaction that Stan and Frank have where they're talking about sort of the two sides. Um, sure. And uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take a little little uh, moment to, to read some of that. Um, as I said, Frank is a, is a, is a journalist. He's a, he's a reporter for the local Price newspaper, and he's, he's mostly retired. But uh, um, uh, here he and, uh, and Stan are talking. Um, sometimes things happen, don't they, Frank said. I thought I'd come out here and interview Drew Peacock and write a story about he and his patriot friends were rescuing our state from federal invaders. Guess it'll be a little more action-packed than that. Is that what you really think? That these recapture people are heroes? That they're doing something honorable? Do you really think that? Calm down a little, Frank said. No, I don't think that. But a lot of people around here do. I do think that the environmentalists could learn a little by listening to the locals, though. And maybe we wouldn't reach the kind of standoff we're in. What do you mean? Stan asked. These guys want to ride ATVs all over the place and strip mine half the West for tar and oil, tar sand and oil shale, and who knows what else. Soon there won't be anything left. It's really a little more subtle than that, Frank said. I understand the environmentalist side. I really do. I've published articles in backpacking magazines and high country news and places like that. But there's a side to the conversation that environmentalists seem, don't seem to be hearing. They don't hear us well, and it's getting us to the point where, well, people are pulling out guns. Something's gone wrong. Sure has, Stan said, sure has. Environmentalists don't see the land the way we do, Frank said. You see its beauty. You see its majesty, its grandeur. You love the wildlife. You appreciate the silence, the clean air, the flowing streams. You see it as a wonderful treasure. And when you go back to Salt Lake City or Phoenix or L.A. or Philadelphia to your job as a lawyer, manager, a business owner, or doctor, you want it to stay just as it was for you to visit and enjoy and gain inspiration from, to have respite from your daily life, a life that may not have much beauty or majesty or silence. Well, yeah, of course, Stan said, that's right. Yes, but when you live here, you see those things too. You love the beauty and the silence and the wildlife. You see those things. We see those things. We love them, too, perhaps more than you do. We have connections to these places. When I visit Raven Flats, I remember coming here with my grandfather, rounding up his cattle to take them to their summer range. 
my folks were here and my aunts and uncles and cousins, and we all worked hard and had names for every gully and hill, and we camped and slept on the ground, and we ate wonderful meals, and the sunsets were the most beautiful you've ever seen, and we sat around campfires, and Grandpa played the guitar and sang Jimmy Rogers songs, and Uncle Lyman played the harmonica, and I thought I was the luckiest boy alive. Well, you see the beauty, I see the condition of the range. I see places where we could cut cedar fence posts and get firewood. I see the condition of the deer herd. I can tell whose cows are fat and happy and whose are struggling. You see, this just isn't a pretty place for me. I'm part of it. I see the beauty, but I also see the details, the living, breathing details. You talk about the ecosystem as if it's something apart, something people are separate from. Well, look just a little deeper and you'll see that people have been part of this place for a long time. And we will be forever. A thousand years from now, we'll be part of this place. I agree it should be kept up and not destroyed. That's critical, but not as an imaginary magic kingdom for city people to come and look at. Not as a place where cowboys or props for uh, pictures that you and the Jetsons take from hover cars and monorails and ooh and on, go back to fancy hotels in Las Vegas and talk about your wilderness experience. No, maybe cattle grazing isn't the best use of the land, but the land deserves more than just to be a pretty thing to look at. But what about the oil wells and mines? You may only see an ugly road or pump jack or drilling rig, but what a lot of locals see is hope. Hope their son can finally have a better job. Hope they can avoid bankruptcy. Hope for the future. We'd probably rather they not be oil and gas and coal. We like clean air too, but we do drive cars. You do too, and turn on our lights, and we know what powers those things. That is Kevin Jones reading from his new novel, A Quick Trip to Moab, Insurrection in the Wilderness. So Kevin, thanks. We've only got a few minutes left. In that section that you read, you mentioned this guy Peacock, who's one of the local leaders of the initial group uh, that goes out. Um, if I recall, Peacock is the name of a person who inspired Hayduke in Edward Abbey's work. Um, and I wonder, in some way, you must see your work as a carrying on of that kind of, you know, monkey wrench gang tradition. Well, um, you know, I, I of course I I love Ed Abbey's work, and I and I and I have read it, and and uh, and I appreciate um, all that he's done, and I, and I you know I I don't think I hold a candle to him, but I do think it's important that we carry on the tradition of of uh, of writing and trying to write well about yeah. the place that we love. Um, and, you know, that's all I can do. That's all I can try to contribute is to, uh, you know, try to try to interest people in, in these in these wonderful and wild places and, and, and get them to think a little bit. And if they if it takes a, uh, a novel that's full of shooting and driving around and chasing through the wilderness <laughs> um, and keeps you reading, then that's 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 what I that's that's my that's my stab at it. Nick. No, I mean yeah. you've got you've got hijackings, you've got shootouts, you've got car chases, you've got murders, you've got rapists, you've got defenders of the wilderness, and we only have a few minutes left. And you mentioned one character earlier when it comes to hope, and that is the dog Speck, who's like a border collie or a border collie mix. Pretty amazing job creating a dog and an accurate, I think, depiction of that kind of dog as a main character, I was totally impressed. Well, thanks. Um, 
it just is not a coincidence that I had a dog named Speck. Ah. And uh, uh, she was uh, one of the most savvy and uh, and aware animals I've ever known. And and she was she was the model for uh, for the character in the book. I mean, she's kind of a little supernatural dog in the in the story. But uh, Speck does do certain things that uh, that uh, help help with the survival of the of the group. So. I'm happy to do it. I love dogs and oh. uh, I liked writing her into it. Yeah. Spec spec drives the plot at many moments. So it's actually pretty interesting. So only a couple minutes left. Um, you mentioned the nine mile Canyon and we see our legislature wanting to like pave it and put oil trucks through it. We see a move to build a railroad line again, a little North of the San Rafael swell, maybe to move oil. We've seen people greasing handholds, sort of a reverse monkey wrench, greasing rocks where people would climb. Um, and yet you've written this book about hope. Um, do you still have some hope? Well, I, I do. I, uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, overly pessimistic, but I, I think, you know, everything takes work. It's easy to throw up your hands and say, what are we ever going to do? We'll never, we'll never beat out the big money of oil and gas or mining. And we'll never, we'll never uh, overcome those, those forces that are going to, you know, try to turn our, our uh, beloved wilderness into a, into a mortar like wasteland. Um, ultimately that kind of stuff, you know, could happen. But uh, with with, uh, you know, people trying and and people um, trying to raise their voices together, you know, and I think, you know, having the um, Emerson Elementary kids campaign for uh, the tiniest creature in the Great Salt Lake, I think it's wonderful. And it's a you know, it's a a way to keep keep those voices, keep raising the voices um, uh, for the preservation of of the things that we love. And one more question that I can't let you leave without. What are you working on next? Another sort of page turner thriller or nonfiction? Or what are you working on? I have both another um, ah. another piece of fiction and a couple of pieces of nonfiction that I'm working on. So, yeah, I, I can't keep away from my uh, word processing. So uh, for better or worse, yeah, I'm still still cranking away. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to read this. You know, once once Stan sort of just gets on the road, he's going to drive down to Moab and visit some friends, happens to stop to pee on the side of the road in Price, and then all hell breaks loose. I thought, you know, I stayed up late at night to finish this, which has a compliment for you as a writer. So thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, I appreciate that. And Kevin, tell us where folks can catch up with you on Facebook or social media. I'm on uh, Facebook. I have Kevin jones writer uh page that uh, i try to keep uh, things related to my uh my books uh up on that and uh, i don't really i don't have a website at this, at this point so the book is a quick trip to moab insurrection in the wilderness the author kevin jones a writer archaeologist 30 years experience across the intermountain west as well as down in paraguay you served as the state archaeologist for over 15 years so thank you talk talk again i hope Thank you. Yes. My pleasure, Nick. That's our show tonight on Radioactive. We are, of course, a show for you, grassroots activists, community builders, and all the punk rock farmers and DIY creatives. Shout out to Laura Jones, who is my producer here. My pleasure to get to be with you on this hour of Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns.